Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and deeply personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Joachim Trier's 2011 film, Oslo, August 31st. It follows Anders, a young man just out of rehab for heroin addiction, as he walks around the city of Oslo in Norway, meeting old friends and trying to decide if life is worth living. I think this is a powerful, an unforgettable film that reminds us of the beauty of being alive. It's one of my favorite films from the 2010s, and I urge you to watch it if you haven't seen it yet. There are major spoilers in this episode. Also, I talk about suicide and mental illness. I know those can be difficult subjects for some people, so I want to be upfront. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms for more information. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts on the show notes of each episode. So I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode about Joachim Trier's 2011 film, Oslo, August 31st. just want to say to begin with that I don't know how this episode is going to turn out, how good it's going to be, because this is my first episode that I'm recording after quite a few months of taking a break from the podcast. I took a break in late 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic had really started to affect me and it had been really draining and difficult just to get through each day. And this podcast is, um, it's emotional. I don't just sit here and talk about films in a very dry, intellectual way. I use the substance of my own life, my own feelings and emotions. That makes doing the podcast a little bit more emotionally draining or emotionally intense. I don't think people realize that, like what goes into each episode. And what I try to do is to always bring my own subjectivity and feelings and experiences. But when you're using the substance of your own life, that's intense. And so I needed a break. You know, I needed to just get away from it, kind of restore myself, replenish myself so that I could um, have something to offer. You know, if you're running on empty and you have an empty tank, then you don't have anything to offer. My life has also gotten really complicated in the past year because my mom has been having health issues. She's been having a lot of issues that affect her mobility and that has been putting more responsibility on me. And I've also 
been having to take care of her physically. So I've become a caretaker in a lot of ways on top of working my job and just surviving life. The podcast will have to evolve with that. Sometimes going forward with these episodes, I may not do as much research as I would have done in the past because I don't have the time you know, I don't have the energy, but I still want to try to put out episodes that I think are good quality and that have my heart and my soul and everything in them. But to longtime listeners, I don't know how many of you there are out there. The quality may change or the pace or different things about the podcast may change in these episodes. Of course, I want to try to maintain the quality. I want to keep doing my best, but they may not be what I want them to be necessarily because my mind and my body are just struggling some days and I'm taking care of my mom. I'm working. I'm dealing with my own mental health issues. I'm dealing with loneliness and depression and anxiety and just dealing with my life. I don't know if I'm at like the greatest place in my life right now. I always cry on these episodes. I just want to be honest about that. You know, life is hard sometimes and I know it's been hard for a lot of people with this pandemic and it certainly takes a toll on me. The past year, not just the pandemic, but watching my mom's health decline. And there may be some of you listening who can relate to that. Maybe you've taken care of a parent. Um, I mean, I'm doing it a bit early at 31. (laughs) Most people maybe do it a little bit later in their life. It's hard to see someone you love struggle and be in pain. And I do everything I can, but I just don't always have enough in me you know, and I do feel like I'm failing. I'm going to try my best with the podcast and I don't want to stop doing it. I don't want to give it up, but I also have to figure out how to balance it with my life and the difficulties of my life, you know. So I just wanted to put a disclaimer. This episode, I feel a little bit rusty because I haven't recorded in a while, but you know what I think is special about these episodes, for me at least, is I like the intimacy. I like the rawness. I like that these are not perfectly polished and produced episodes. This is me in my bedroom holding a microphone talking about a film and I hope that that's what keeps some of you coming back (laughs) is that I'm just like your friend. We're just sitting together on my bed talking about a movie (laughs) and why I loved it and that's what the podcast was in the very very beginning and so it was very raw in the early episodes. And I've had some people say that they liked that and they kind of preferred it. So it might go back to that. It might get really raw (laughs) um, at times. So I just wanted to say that to anybody who's been a long time listener. But this is my first episode in quite a few months and a lot's happened and a lot's going on. And I'll always be open and transparent about that. And I'll always talk about my life on these episodes and my struggles and my joys and everything. That's what I do. I do believe that art, it becomes intertwined with our lives. My whole argument, or I guess my whole premise with this podcast is about the way that movies merge with our lives, how they inform our lives. So I'm talking about Oslo, August 31st. I watched this film in 2020. I had had known about it for many years because it obviously came out in 2011. So it's, you know, 
now it's like a decade old at this point. I had known about it. I'd always been really interested in it. And so I finally watched it at the um, the latter half of 2020 and was just blown away by it. Knew I had to do an episode. Had no doubt that I had to do an episode. I do think that certain forms of art find us when we need them. I'm not some kind of like spiritual person. I'm not a religious person. I don't necessarily believe there's any like higher power or bigger meaning or I certainly don't believe in the bearded man in the sky. (laughs) You know, I'm definitely like an atheist and all of that very rational. But I do think sometimes it's just strange in my own life how I have found books, music, films at moments when I needed them the most. Like right now, I've been having sort of a difficult time in my life. I've just felt really low. My confidence, my self-esteem has been really low. And I got to listening to the Cranberries. Now, I've known about the Cranberries for years. I love the song Dreams. I love Linger. I love Zombie. But I only knew them from their you know, singles and their hits. And I've started to listen to their um, their albums. And I listened to this album of covers of um, Carpenter's songs. This is how I got back into the Cranberries is that there was this album made like in 1994 or the early 90s of like all these alternative bands who did covers of, of Carpenter's songs. I love the Carpenters. I've always been fascinated by Karen Carpenter. Her story has really haunted me a lot of my life. I remember remember when I was a kid watching VH1 Behind the Music and learning about her battle with anorexia and how she died young and all these things. So she sort of haunted me. And I know that Todd Haynes made like this experimental film about her. I've always meant to watch it, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. So I came across this you know, this Carpenter's cover record, right? I got obsessed with the Sonic Youth cover of Superstar. And then there's also a cover on it uh, by the Cranberries. And the Cranberries covered They Long to Be Close to You. At first, I didn't like it. At first, I was like, oh, this is like really conventional. Um, I don't know. At first, I didn't like it. Because the Sonic Youth cover of Superstar is so different. Totally transforms that song. It's very haunting, for me. And with the Cranberries cover, it was more conventional, but it has absolutely grown on me. And I fell in love with Dolores's voice. That is why I've been listening to the Cranberries is her voice. And she died a few years ago, unfortunately. And her voice is so pure and delicate and beautiful and powerful. Like, I feel like I'm under a spell with this woman, with Dolores's voice from the Cranberries. I'm so in love with her right now. But I I say all of this because there are just certain songs on some of their albums, songs I had never heard by them, that have really connected to me just at this moment in my life. In particular, the song Dying in the Sun from their album Burying the Hatchet. It is just so beautiful and it... I can't even talk about it. I've been, I've just been listening to the Cranberries a lot. And so I do believe sometimes that like art finds us, like poetry can find us. I've really been in love with the poetry of Ruth L. Schwartz lately. If you have not read Ruth L. Schwartz, please go read her poetry. She has just been amazing, an amazing part of my life recently. I got a few of her books off eBay. I have, I have this, I have this thing where I can read a poet 
And if I really like some of their poems, I will go on eBay and I will try to find as many books by them <laughs> as I can if they're affordable. You know, if you know, if I can find used books for a decent price. So I got as many Ruth L. Schwartz books as I could. <laughs> And I've been reading her poetry. I've been listening to the Cranberries. I've been into a lot of music lately. I have not been watching films as much. Music has been a huge comfort to me, particularly during the pandemic and just during a low point in my life. I've been getting back into Elliot Smith lately. I got really into Portishead for a while. I got into Joanna Newsom. I got into Nick Cave. I've gotten into PJ Harvey. You know, these are just a few. And now I'm like really into the Cranberries at the moment. So, so this music has found me. Books and poetry have found me and films find me at times. And I can't always explain why I watch a film. Sometimes it's an image. Sometimes it's a trailer. It's a description. And there was something about Oslo August 31st that attracted me to it. I had always wanted to see it and so I just decided to finally watch it. There were images from it that I found really intriguing. So sometimes I'll just follow a feeling when it comes to a film. And I would encourage anybody listening to do that. Be open. Be open to films. And if there's an image that strikes you, watch the film. You never know. Don't read a bunch of reviews. I mean, if that's your thing, fine. I don't do that. I go off just things that I feel or sometimes recommendations from people and things like that. I just really believe when it comes to art and going with a feeling and going it's hard to explain. There's something very mysterious that takes place. I don't know how to describe it or put it into words, but I feel it deeply when I'm watching a film that moves me, or I'm listening to music that comforts me, or I'm reading poetry that just amazes me. I, I love... I just love discovering stuff. I love finding art that moves me deeply and that like changes me where I feel like, oh, I'm not the same person because of this poem or because of this movie. Also, August 31st is, I think it's one of the best films of the 2010s. Now, have I seen every film that was released in the 2010s? No. <laughs> I actually am really behind on current releases and contemporary films, but I absolutely think that Oslo August 31st is one of the best films that I've seen that was released in the 2010s. And that's partly also why I wanted to talk about it. It's an updated version of Louis Mal's 1963 film The Fire Within and that film stars Maurice Rene as a depressive and alcoholic writer and he goes around visiting old friends during the day before he commits suicide and at the end of the film he shoots himself and he dies. I rewatched The Fire Within either before or after Oslo August 31st. I can't remember. And I think that one holds up. That was a film that I watched really early on when I was becoming a cinephile. Uh, I became a cinephile around 2011. I saw Chris Marker's La Jetée and it changed my life. And I started to watch a lot of French directors. I would say Louis Mal is not quite as famous as a Godard, as a Truffaut, Avarda, right? Chris Marker. But Louis Mal was kind of big for me. I watched quite a few of his films. When I was becoming a cinephile, I love Elevator to the Gallows. I love The Fire Within. It was really powerful to me and it spoke to me because it is about depression and all of that. The Lovers. Several of his films star Jean Moreau. 
and Jeanne Moreau's one of my favorite French actresses um, but she's one of my favorite art house classic art house actresses along with Anna Karina Monica Vitti those women and Jeanne Moreau has a brief cameo in The Fire Within she plays a friend of the main character so I definitely recommend The Fire Within if you haven't seen it but I love how um, Trier really brought the story into the 21st century in a really beautiful way right and he was not just inspired by the film he he was also inspired by a book that inspired the fire within because the fire within itself is a film adaptation it's an adaptation of a book by pierre drew la rochelle and that book is it's called will of the wisp that's what i think the english translation is and it was done in the 1930s written in the 1930s it's a short novel and according to wikipedia quote this short novel narrates the last days of a former heroin user who commits suicide it was inspired by the death of drew's friend the surrealist poet jacques rigaud louis mal adapted it for the screen in 1963 as the fire within unquote and then oslo august 31st is an adaptation of that book as well and it stays true to the heroin addiction i think in the fire within uh the character is an alcoholic so i don't know if it stays quite as much with the heroin addiction the way that oslo august 31st does so i just wanted to talk about the inspiration i think trier in interviews said that he did not see the fire within before he made oslo august 31st it was a little bit of i got conflicting information like in one interview he said he didn't see the film so he was basically going off the book but then i read another interview and it kind of made it sound like he had watched the film the fire within before making oslo august 31st so i just want to be clear that i don't know i don't know for sure but he was definitely inspired by the book and so was Louis Mao. I just wanted to talk about the inspiration for the film and then now I'll talk about the film itself. It's directed by Joachim Trier. I did my best to find out the proper pronunciation of his name. It was hard. So if it's not correct, I apologize to any Norwegian listeners out there came out in 2011, really was released in 2012 here in the United States, and it's distributed by Strand Releasing. It stars, the main star is Anders Danielson Lai as the main character. What's very interesting to note about this film is that it came out shortly after the 2011 Norway attacks. Um, these were a series of attacks that were committed by the right-wing terrorist Anders Breivik, and I think many of us know about that. I mean, I certainly knew about it. So on the 22nd of July in 2011, Anders Breivik exploded a car bomb in Oslo that killed eight people. He then went on a shooting rampage at a summer camp on the island of Utoya, and there he killed 69 people. In total, during this terrorist attack, 77 people were murdered. It was a horrific attack, and it did make worldwide news, and I can only imagine the way that it affected people in Norway. From what I read, it was the worst attack there since the second world war the shooting rampage on the island is the deadliest shooting rampage ever um 69 people were murdered in it and many of them young people 
teenagers. It was a horrific attack and it was inspired by right-wing fanaticism and extremism on his part. I'm not going to go in depth about the attack, but it had a big impact on Oslo and on the people of Norway and it needs to be acknowledged. Also because the film came out shortly after the attacks and people were moved by the film in a different way in Norway, I'm sure, because of its focus on the city of Oslo. So it had a profound impact on people in Norway. I think it's also interesting to note that the actor in this film, Anders Danielson Lai, plays Anders Breivik in a film. I think it's on Netflix and it's called The 22nd of July. The film is about Oslo. It's a film about a city in a lot of ways, about this man navigating the city, walking around the city. Also, it's about the city before this attack. It captures Oslo before the terrorism that occurred. So there's an innocence maybe about it as well, an innocence of these people in Oslo before this very traumatic terrorist attack took place. And also at the very beginning of the film, there's like archive footage of Oslo that um, Trier uses. There's like a voiceover with people um, talking about the first time they came to Oslo and other memories. It's like very uh, fragmented memories, almost like poetry. There are just bits and pieces of people saying like, I remember thinking I'll remember this. I remember his laughter, the scent of salt on her skin. We had so much time on her, on our hands. I remember walking past his flat. I remember having a best friend. Just people people saying like these random things and then it's over this archive footage and I think pretty quickly we get a sense of Anders as not just an individual but a citizen you know a man who's part of this city who's been shaped by this city whose life is is a part of the city so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that attack and the the effect that it had but also how it um intersects with the film a bit that it gave the film a different layer I think a different layer of emotion for Norwegian people or people in Oslo who went to see the film particularly in the months after such a traumatic terrifying experience that really affected a lot of people in Norway. So now I want to talk about the film itself. I was so impressed with this film and as I said earlier I feel like certain works of art find us when we need it and my point with that was that I watched this film at a particular time in my life when I felt like I related to this film in a different way because it's about a man in his early 30s struggling and no I'm not a heroin addict. I can't relate to that kind of a addiction, but I related to a lot of stuff about this character and about Anders. This is a man full of shame. This is a man who has a lot of regrets about his life. He's in his early 30s. I think he's like 34 and I'm 31. I'm going to turn 32 in a few months in July. It hit me like it hit me in a different way than I think it would have hit me when I was in my late 20s or in my early 20s. You know, his friends are like all coupled up and or married. A lot of them have children. I don't have that. You know, I live a very like lonely life. I struggle with physical health issues. I struggle with mental health issues. You know, I'm taking care of my mom. I live like a really isolated, lonely life. It's a big reason why I even have the podcast is so that I have an outlet and a way to talk about things, talk about my life, talk talk about films. You know, I have had a difficult life in some ways and I do talk about that in episodes, but I could relate to Anders and his his torment 
that he feels and the sense of like what have I done with my life you know I've wasted so much time I understood that like I understood that in a really deep way so this film kind of found me at a very particular time in my life when I was open to it and I related to it and a similar film that also hit me at a particular time in my life was a film called Summer Interlude by Ingmar Bergman because when I did the episode about that film I was the same age as the girl in the film. I think she was 27 or 28 and that was another film that I felt like found me somehow and I feel the same about Oslo August 31st for sure. So I'm just going to go through the film, talk about scenes, talk about themes, share my thoughts, stuff like that. It's going to be pretty loose (laughs) but I'm going to do my best with it. So at the beginning of this film, I think what's interesting about the film is that like suicide bookmarks the film. We see Anders wake up I think with his girlfriend but then he leaves and he goes to the woods he goes to a river and he puts these rocks in his pockets definitely made me think of Virginia Woolf who did something who did something similar and he picks up this really huge rock and then he walks into the lake or the river and goes under you know he goes under the water and he tries to die it's an aborted suicide attempt attempt it's a failed suicide attempt and it, that become that comes at the beginning of the film and then his successful suicide attempt happens at the end of it where he does kill himself. I think it's interesting how death in a way bookmarks the film but then there's life in between and there's all these moments throughout the film when Anders' life could go a completely different direction particularly in the end when he meets the girl at the party and they go to the pool and I'll talk about that scene and it reminds us that like our lives are always evolving our lives are always in flux that what we feel one day we may not feel another day that our life can go in different directions on a whim somebody can come into our lives we can meet someone that changes us an opportunity could come along that is something that maybe gives me a little bit of hope and when I am in a dark place with my depression or just feeling down about life lately I've been trying to tell myself you know Caitlin you don't know what the future could hold you don't know what good things could happen maybe. They may not be happening right now. (laughs) It feels like I'm in this hole sometimes that I can't get out of. You know, it may not come right now, but you never know what the future could hold. It could hold dark things too. It could hold scary things and I'm sure it does, but I try to remind myself that there could be really great things too and you don't know where your life could go. You don't know what your life could be like in a few years or months or whatever. And I think this film is so interesting in showing that, that, you know, here's a character who is going towards death, right? The whole time he's going towards death and he knows that he's going towards death. He's planned it in his mind. As soon as he buys the heroin, he buys that one gram of heroin, he knows that he's going towards death. But there are people along the way that he almost maybe connects to, right? Like when he goes to see his friend Thomas or when he meets the girl at the party and his life could shift and his life could go a different way, but it doesn't. He isn't open to it. He doesn't allow it. He is laser focused on death and on killing himself. That's the way out for him. That's the only thing he sees. And I think Trier said this in an interview that like he doesn't see the film as being about death so much, but he sees it as being about life. I would absolutely agree with that. I think what surprised me about the film is that for it to start with a suicide attempt and to end 
with suicide, with the death of the main character, the film is filled with life. It's about this man talking to his friends again. It's not just about the life of Anders, but the life of the people around him. Like when he's sitting in the cafe, right? And hearing people's thoughts and feelings and stuff. And the, because he grounds it in, in a city like Oslo, I think Trier is able to go beyond Anders himself and to also look at the people around Anders and the way he's affected by those people, but the way he's also alienated from them and separated from them. So the film begins really shockingly with the suicide attempt. We're seeing a character at his most desperate and vulnerable. This is a very vulnerable moment of his life and I think that you feel an immediate connection to Anders. There are very few films for me that feel very intimate and feel like you know the character and this was a film like that. It kind of reminded me of the Dardan Brothers film Two Days One Night with Marion Cotillard. I would say that that is a similar film that's very intimate where you watch a character um, and you feel connected to her. You feel intimately connected to her. And I would say that with Anders, that's how I felt about him. That I felt like I know him. Like we're the same. I just felt immediately connected to him. I thought it was interesting Anders as a man. He's such a vulnerable character at times and he shows emotion a lot in the film which is kind of unusual. Um, We don't often see men struggling. We don't see men crying. We don't see men being vulnerable very often on screen. And that was very moving to me where he cries or there will be scenes where he's talking and he has tears in his eyes. He is so raw. The the actor, you know, Anders Danielson Lai, he brings such a rawness and vulnerability to the role that I think is really beautiful. I like to see that. I like to see men who feel who have emotions, right? But I think at the same time, Anders, he does feel like you can see his emotions, but he's also somebody very separate and very numb and he's not able to connect. I think ultimately this is a film about loneliness and the inability to connect. That's the sense that I feel about Anders is that he is surrounded by people. He has people who love him, people who care about him, people who want to do things for him. You know, he's got Thomas, he's got his parents, he's got his girlfriend, he's got his friends. They care about him and they love him, you know, despite everything that's happened, you know, the, that the addiction and the way he's treated people as well, you know, there's some hurt feelings there. He's definitely hurt the people around him, but those people remain invested in his life and they care about his life, but he can't return it. They give love, they give care, they give concern, but he can't give it back to them. And I think he's missing something or he's not able to find within himself the ability to connect with other people. And I've always struggled to connect with other people. I haven't had as many people in my life who loved me or cared about me the way that Anders does. He kind of has an embarrassment of riches in a lot of ways. He does have a lot of advantages and it just seems like a lot of it's kind of squandered on him or wasted on him. Like he can't connect and he can't love and he can't be vulnerable or open or something. He's kind of just trapped in his loneliness and in himself. But to see a man so vulnerable was really moving to me and I think it was powerful and I think here in like the United States in particular we don't we just don't see representations of like men 
or masculinity like that. We just don't. And we don't see a ton of films and stuff about addiction, about drug addiction. I think there's still a really huge stigma with it. Just like there's a stigma of mental illness as well. It's seen as weakness, particularly for a man, I think. So it's it's really interesting to see that, I think. I was really moved by the group therapy session um, that is at the beginning of the film. It's something that really stayed with me, particularly when I watched it the first time. And I think this was like the thing about the film, from what I gathered um, in interviews that Trier did, the film is a is like a mix of a documentary and fiction. There are certain scenes in the film that are more documentary that are like real people. I think he said that the very beginning when the when people are talking, that's real people. And I do believe in an interview he said that this group therapy session was real, that that was real people, not necessarily actors. So people are talking about their lives and their struggles uh, with addiction. And I was really moved by a young woman who talks about how her emotional state is similar to when she was young and in school. And she talks about this black void, how this black void is back and she no longer has the relief of shooting up. When she used to shoot up, that used to provide relief to her. She says that she doesn't know how to live with that black void. And I think that this is something that I struggle with as well. I'm a very melancholy person. I think it's pretty clear on these episodes. I tend to define myself by my suffering and my woundedness and my pain. I'm really haunted by the past. I'm obsessed with nostalgia. Um, I can never really accept things as they are in the present. I always feel like something's missing. I'm never really at peace. Maybe I've had to make peace with the idea that I may never be at peace if that makes any sense. I don't know. I recently wrote in my diary, like, I will never find peace. It feels like I won't. It feels like my life will always have a lot of, like, pain and turmoil, and I feel like I can't make it work. (laughs) Like, I can't, I can't get myself together, right? I can't have the life that I really want to have, and I can't find people to connect to, and I feel like I fuck things up a lot. I feel like I mess things up, that I mess up relationships, that I, um, that I'm just so flawed, you know, and so messed up. That's how I feel sometimes. I'll never find any peace. I do go through periods when I'm stable, you know, and I get through and I'm surviving, but I'll be okay, and I'll be stable, and then suddenly this massive black hole will open up inside of me. I can feel it pulsating, like in inside me in my chest, and I often feel like I'm sinking and I'm drowning, and that I'm underwater and I can't reach the surface where the light is. Like I can't live. I don't know how to live. I don't know why I'm here. Um, I don't know how to cope with life. I feel so alone, and I struggle to connect with others. And I feel like there's some kind of deficiency inside me that prevents me from connecting to people or to being loved by them. I have love to give. I do care about people. I want to love. I want to be loved. But it's like people don't love me. (laughs) And I can't always figure out why they don't love me. Why they don't care about me the way that I might care about them. And it hurts. And it does a lot of damage to me to not be loved, you know? So my loneliness is so intense at times that it frightens me. Like it frightens me. I can feel so alienated and I've always felt too much and I've never known how to handle all these emotions. I try to write them, but then I feel like no matter how much I write, I'll never be able to contain sort of the overflow 
of all these emotions. And I've always been really self-destructive in my life in order to cope with feelings and to cope with the emptiness. So when this girl was, this young woman was talking about that black void and how she turned to drugs to cope with it. I understood that. Like I felt that. Like I know that black void. And I think maybe that's one of the big questions of my life is like how to live with this void that I've been in contact with since I was very young, since I was a child. How do I cope with this black void and not let it consume everything, including me? And I wonder if Anders, that's what he feels. Like he just fills this black void and he doesn't know what to do with it. And eventually I think that void claims him and it takes him. And he's really like no match for it in a way. And if you haven't felt that void, it's hard to explain it to somebody else. It's just there. It just pulsates. It doesn't go away. And so that group therapy session, that scene was really powerful to me when she talked about that. So Anders leaves that group therapy session and he goes to see his friend Thomas who has like the polar opposite life from him but I think they they've been friends for many years but Thomas has like a steady job and he has a wife and he has kids and he has an apartment and he's really like a contrast to Anders and he's probably he probably represents what Anders wants maybe or maybe Anders doesn't want it I don't know I don't know if Anders even knows what he wants (laughs) but he has everything that you should have I guess when you're in your early 30s and what Anders doesn't have and they sit and talk about things. Anders talks about his girlfriend and I think we saw her at the beginning of the film and he says that he feels nothing when he's with her. This stuck out to me because I feel like when we feel nothing I think that's a very dangerous thing. As hard as it is to feel so much and to feel so deeply the way that I do I think I still prefer it to that numbness and that nothingness that I think Anders has. I think to be numb is almost to not be alive or not connected to life. So as long as I can feel then I know that I'm here at least and that I am connected to life. I think when you're cut off from your feelings you're cut off from connection and maybe even help or salvation. If you can't feel and you can't connect, how can you be saved? How can you be helped? You have to feel something. And I think Anders is an incredibly numb person. We learn a lot when he's talking to Thomas. We learn that like Anders' parents are selling their house. We don't know if that's totally a choice. He says that he's messed up Uh, a lot of things financially. He doesn't go into detail about that, but I would imagine maybe with his drug addiction, he was doing, you know, he was putting a lot of money into that, possibly. Anders seems to have some failed ambitions as a writer. He has a job interview later on with this, like, publication, like, as an editorial assistant. He seems, the position seems beneath him a little bit. He seems kind of upset you know, that maybe he's not the writer that he thought he was going to become. And that's something I struggle with as well, that I've written for a lot of my life. I studied literature in college and, you know, I felt, I always got praised for my writing and, and teachers would tell me what a good writer I was, but I haven't necessarily pursued it. I haven't necessarily put a lot of work into it. I want to, but I don't always have it to give. My energy goes into everything else, into surviving, into taking care of people, into, you know, all these things. And most days I just feel like I don't have a lot left. Maybe Anders feels the same. Maybe he doesn't have a lot left, but I can kind of understand that feeling as well of like being a failed writer or not being who you thought you would be or who you wanted to be. Um, There's a scene where Thomas 
Anders' friend that he went to see, Thomas and Anders are sitting on this bench like outside and they're talking. Anders is really open about stuff. He talks about feeling a sense of failure about his life and he says he doesn't really love his girlfriend and he got some money that day and immediately he thought about buying heroin. I mean, he tells this to Thomas and he says, quote, look at me. I'm 34 years old. I have nothing. I can't start from scratch. You don't understand. Unquote. I get the sense with Anders that he feels very ashamed. And I think that shame can be a very destructive feeling. Shame can really keep us from living. Like I've struggled with shame my entire life. And I've also dealt with self-hatred. And I kind of feel like shame and self-hatred are connected in a way. Or they have this relationship. It's hard to, to describe. I particularly think self-hatred is, is destructive. I think when you hate yourself, you can't live. You can't function. You can't be in the world and connect with people and have a fulfilling life if you hate yourself and hate everything about yourself. So self-hatred and shame are things that I really struggle with and that I've been trying to get better about, but it's not easy. And so when I saw Anders, I saw a lot of myself in Anders. The age similarity, the failed ambitions, the loneliness, the shame, the self-hatred, the regrets, the sense that he can't get his life together. All of it resonates with me at this moment in my life. Thomas tries to remind him that he has family and friends and he's intelligent and that he has more than a lot of other people who are struggling with substance abuse, who might be homeless, who might be completely alone, right? And Anders says, quote, I'm a spoiled brat who fucked up. Nobody needs me. Not really unquote. thought that was a powerful thing for him to say. Nobody needs me. And that can be a painful feeling when you don't feel like you're needed or you don't feel like you're essential or important to other people in their lives. And Anders tells Thomas in that conversation, you know, if he ends his life, it's because he made a choice to do it. And he wants Thomas to know that. So at that moment, we pretty much know, okay, Anders is thinking about suicide. We kind we already knew it. I mean, he tried to do it at the beginning of the film, right? But we know it's on his mind. Even though he's going to see these friends and he's going to the job interview, really he's just playing a part. He's just pretending. He's just going through the motions. He's sort of just waiting it out until he can kill himself, really. And particularly when he buys the heroin later on in the film, that's in the back of his head the entire time. So like I said, this is a character going towards death hurtling towards death but there's a lot of life in the film too and you keep thinking maybe something will stop him maybe he'll have a revelation maybe he'll have an epiphany maybe he'll see a glimmer of hope for himself he'll see some kind of possibility for his life something will touch him he'll feel something he'll connect to something something will stop this it's almost like a boulder going down a hill or something and he's going towards death and it's like at any time something could intercept that and he could go towards life. And what makes one person go towards death and another person go towards life? That's a big question I think for me as well is like why does one person go through a particular experience and they are resilient and they get through it. I mean what haunts me is like you know I lost a parent 
when I was a teenager. I lost my dad when I was 16 and it was so traumatic and destructive and it shattered me and I am a completely broken human being for the most part. All I've been trying to do for years and years, like almost 15 years now, this year will be the 15th anniversary of his death. All this time I've been trying to like take all those little shards and put them back together and actually become a human being (laughs) again and I'm like failing and struggling with it. Like how do you do that? And then other people have lost a parent at 16 or as a teen. They've got it together. (laughs) They've got a spouse and kids and a good life and I'm over here (laughs) like traumatized. You know, I don't have a, a love life. You know, I don't have children. I don't have this life that I wanted. What makes one person to make it through it okay and then another person falls apart? And you could say the same about like suicidal stuff. Why does one person go towards death and another person go towards life? I don't know. We're all different. We're all so unique. We don't all have the support we need. We don't all have the resources we need. Some of us come into this world and we only know pain for a lot of it. And we just can't take it anymore. Who knows? You know, why do some people, why do some people go toward life and other people go toward death? I don't know. Anders is going toward death the entire film. He's on that track and he can't get off really. And at one point Anders says really sarcastically, quote, it'll get better. It'll all work out, except it won't, unquote. He laughs at it. He laughs after he says that, then he stops and there's these tears in his eyes that, you know, that is a platitude. It gets better. It'll get better. But sometimes it doesn't get better. It didn't get better after my dad died. Like more people died. My grandmother died. My uncle died. I've had health issues. I've struggled with mental health issues. Like my life didn't get better. I've survived. I've lived. I have done everything I can to get through each day. But things didn't get better for me necessarily. They went on. You know, life doesn't always get better. It goes on. And you find a way to live each day or you don't, right? I do get frustrated with stuff like that. Like, yeah, do I try to tell myself positive things? Yeah, I'm trying to do that. You know, I definitely am trying to do that and get in a better place with it. I would like to heal. You know, I would like to feel better about things, but I don't know. Not everybody's life gets better. Sometimes you just hurt and you always hurt in some way and you find a way to live with the hurting and you try not to destroy yourself in order to destroy the hurt. You find a way to bear that pain, bear that anguish that is inside of you. Sometimes you do a good job at it. Sometimes you don't do a good job at it. I thought that was a powerful scene. And I think a lot of people have been in the place that Anders is in. When you're in that really dark place and you don't think things will get better, you don't see the light. When you're in it, it's like this quicksand, right? It's like this vortex that's swallowing swallowing you up. You can't get out of it. But Thomas reminds him, quote, you got through it before unquote. So Thomas tries to say, hey, you can get through this. You have gotten through it before. But I don't think Anders is open to that, to that message, right? He's just not open to it. And then later on, they're talking and Thomas sort of talks about how boring his life is. You know, him and his wife don't have sex much anymore and, you know, just things like that. And I think it's a good reminder that like not everybody's life is perfect. I think something I can tend to do is to compare my life to other people's. And you really just can't do that. If you're someone who does it, you have to stop. And I I tell myself, 
myself all the time. I have to stop comparing myself to other people. They didn't lose a dad when they were 16. They didn't go through poverty. They didn't go through the depression and anxiety and the things that I have been through. They haven't had my life and I haven't really had a lot of support or access to resources with it. I have just done my best to get through and my life is my own and it's unique and it has its own set of circumstances. Somebody else can't really understand it. They can try to be empathetic. They can be compassionate, but you really just can't understand what somebody else has gone through. I kind of liked that scene because it was a good reminder. Like Thomas looks like he has it all, but he struggles with stuff too. I think, you know, when we're on social media, we can get really wrapped up in other people having better lives than us. And sometimes they objectively have better lives than us. That's true. Like rich people have a better life than me. I'm not going to deny that, right? There are definitely people having better lives than me. But also I just don't love getting into that spiral of comparing myself to others, but it's hard not to. (laughs) But I thought that scene was a good reminder right? Like a lot of people are struggling. They're struggling with ordinary issues and stuff and just with the boring monotony of life. You know, everybody can kind of struggle with that. Andrews goes to that job interview for an editorial assistant for like this publication. You know, he admits that he's had drug addiction and the interview doesn't go well and he's really mad when he leaves. He's very upset and he goes to this cafe. I love this scene. This might be one of my favorite scenes and he's looking around at all the people at this cafe and he listens into fragments of the conversation. I love this because I'm kind of like this. I'm a little bit of like a people watcher when I'm out in public and I'm so nosy. I'm so voyeuristic. I I love to eavesdrop (laughs) and to know what people are talking about. I'm always fascinated by other people's lives and stuff like that. And he's just looking around like he sees some teen girls and that makes him smile like they're just laughing about something. And then there's this one girl sitting there and she's going through this list of stuff. It seems to be some kind of assignment for school. She looks like she's a college student and it seems like she's listing out things that she wants to do, things she dreams of. And she really lists out a lot of stuff that so many people would. And I'm going to list out some of the stuff. She says, travel the world, eat only ice cream for a day, write a great novel, stay in touch with friends, feel successful, swim with dolphins, send a message in a bottle. Isn't that romantic? And yes, I did see the the film message in a bottle when I was a child with Robin Wright and Kevin Costner. That film messed me up. I have to tell y'all this. I still remember seeing that film at like a little movie theater in my local hometown when I was young, when I was a kid. And me, my mom and dad went to go see it. I still remember. This is such a vivid memory. Will I cover Message in a Bottle one day? I really want to cover some of these 90s romantic films, y'all. I really want to do it. Like Under the Tuscan Sun and Message in a Bottle. I want to cover some romantic films one of these days. But I went to see the film with my mom and my dad. And me and my mom, after that film, we were sobbing in the car on the ride home. I bet my dad... I bet my dad thought we were lunatics, but yeah, we were crying over message in a bottle. I probably would cry over it again. 
So that's my little tangent. And she talks about she wants to watch the clouds all day. She wants to read a great book and remember quotes from it for the rest of her life. I want to do that too. She wants to paint pictures that show how she feels. She wants to cover a wall with painting and paintings and words that are close to her heart. She wants to make people listen to her. She wants to have a good job. She wants to sleep beneath open skies. And most importantly, she wants to be loved. That's the last one she says. She wants to be loved. So a lot of these desires are very universal. It's like she's kind of speaking for all of us when she talks about that. I think it's a reminder that we're so different, right? Like all of us are so different and unique and all of that. But we are really bound together by very similar desires and wants in this world and needs. I think love is not just a want and it's not just a a desire. It is a need. I was talking to a friend about this. We were, we've been talking a lot about love with each other. And I told her, I think she asked, she asked me a question like, what is the ramification of not being loved, of not being cared for the way that we need? And I told her the ramification is death. There are people dying from not being loved. It is life and death. Love is very serious. I think. And loneliness and not being loved, not being cared for, not being held, um, not mattering, right? And not being loved. People are dying of that. They're dying of lovelessness and loneliness. I think a lot of people are starved for it, hungering for it. And I like to use the word hunger because we need food to live. Hunger is life and death, isn't it? Love is life and death. And when we are not loved or not loved in the way that we need, it has very serious consequences. When she says that, be loved, that's what we all want. And it's something that connects us as people. Yes, we're all different. We all have different circumstances. As I said, you cannot fully understand another person's life, though you can try and you should try. I do want to try to understand other people, their perspectives and their lives. But something that connects us all is our need for love. And it's okay to need it. It's okay to need love. I need it. That's something that the pandemic really showed to me and that was sort of triggered and activated in me is that I realized how alone I was, how lonely I've been for a really long time, how I have not had the love and connection and care that I need as a human being. And it's taken a toll on me and it's done damage to me. So I thought it was very powerful when she ended that with be loved. And Anders is loved. You know, he has friends and family that love him, but he can't accept it, I guess. Or he can't feel that love. He can't connect to it. He's numb and he's cut off. He's cut off from people. There's another scene where Anders is talking about his parents a little bit. Thought it was interesting. He's very adamant that his parents have nothing to do with his heroin addiction and that they're not to blame for it. And we hear him in voiceover and he's sort of walking around Oslo. He's walking around the city and he just talks about random stuff about his parents. Like they watched the evening news. They made him a critical reader. They respected his privacy. Maybe too much, he says. I thought this was interesting. Um, Quote, They never taught me to cook or build a relationship. They never told me how friendship dissolves until you're strangers, friends in name only, unquote. I thought that was powerful. Like when he said they didn't teach him how to build a relationship. I think that's a actually a big thing that a lot of us won't love, but we're not necessarily taught 
what that means. Like how to love other people. How to show love and give love and receive love. How to have a friendship or a relationship. And I think that people don't really understand what love is. I I truly believe that. We have misconceptions about what love is. We don't always have the healthiest relationships as as a result of it. But his parents were just ordinary. Just ordinary people. He doesn't blame them. The thing about Andrews, we're not really provided a reason for the addiction at all. We don't know why he takes heroin. There doesn't seem to be a big trauma. He's not from a dysfunctional family. He's not particularly alone. He has friends. He has people who care about him. We don't really know (laughs) why he is addicted to heroin, except for, I guess, that black boy, perhaps, that maybe there is this void inside of him. And I don't think he even knows why he turns to heroin the way that he does. And when he turns to the heroin, he hurts people. And he knows that he has hurt people. He knows that he's not there for them the way he should be. He knows that his overdose, I think there's a mention that he had overdosed at some point, and just the stuff that comes from being an addict, you know, lying, stealing sometimes, putting people through a lot of pain, the people who love you, who worry about you. He knows that he's hurt the people around him. And he's messed up things financially, which has affected his parents. So he knows he's lot, he's done a lot of damage. So he carries the addiction. You know, he carries that on him. And then he also carries the sense of shame and failure. That he can't be what other people want him to be. And he can't be there for people the way that he wants to be. So Anders goes to this birthday party of one of his friends, Miriam. Like a lot of people are shocked to see him. And she's really shocked to see him as well. At that party, he sees that young girl that he gets with later on in the film. Oh, I wanted to say about this scene that there's a song that plays in it that I absolutely got obsessed with after I watched the film. Like when it was playing in the scene, I was like, what is this? I went and I googled it and it's called Under Your Spell by Desire. And I love this song. The film gave me this song. I can listen to this song on repeat for hours. It's really about unrequited love. It's about like being obsessed with somebody and I definitely can relate to that and um so it's like I put this song on repeat and I can just listen to it for hours forever I just wanted to say that I love that song and Anders sits for a little while and he talks to Miriam and they talk pretty in depth she talks about how she's struggling with entering her 30s it's her birthday party she talks about how it's easier for men a lot of the guys at the party who are in their 30s they're dating women much younger than them she talks about how her friends have children but she doesn't have any yet. It's not clear if she wants any. She's been in a relationship for nine years. So she's been in a long-term relationship for a while. She kind of has some of the, some similar struggles as Anders, I guess you could say, but she vocalizes a struggle of a lot of people entering their thirties who, you know, maybe don't have children or don't have like, or not doing the stuff that they might think they're expected to. It's something that I definitely struggle with as like a 31 year old woman. You know, I'm not in a relationship. I don't have children. I don't have like this really stable life. I don't have what a lot of people my age probably do have. And it makes me feel weird and different and strange and alienated. And and I also don't know if I want those things. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. It changes by the day. I don't always know what I want. I don't always know who I am. Things about me can shift, you know, day by day. Some days I wish I was in a relationship. Sometimes I hate men and I never want to be in a relationship. 
relationship. And I think men are trash. (laughs) I get confused and frustrated and stuff by them. And then, you know, other times I'm like, a lovesick person where I'm like, oh, I want to be in love. I want to, you know, meet a guy. It changes by the day. Or sometimes I'm like, oh, I want children. I would love to have a child. And then other days I'm like, there's no way I could be a mother. I would be a terrible mother. I I don't know. It's like I'm in a weird place in my life. So I could kind of relate to Miriam in that way. She doesn't really know what she wants, but She's kind of uncomfortable that she's getting into her 30s and what that means, right? And I turned 30, you know, a little while ago, and it was definitely like an existential crisis type thing or identity crisis of like, what does this mean, right? I'm in my 30s now. Like, I don't feel like I'm in my 30s. My life is so different from other people's. I feel so behind, you know, I haven't accomplished anything. I can't get my life together. I'm a mess. I'm fucked up. Just all these things. I don't know. I'm still in that place. I still, and I'm about to turn 32 in a few months. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) do. So he leaves that party and he steals some money from some of the purses that are in a room. He keeps trying to get in touch with his girlfriend. He never does in the film, but he takes that money and he goes and buys the heroin. He buys like a gram. And I tried to Google this. It was hard to find information, but apparently a gram of heroin is a lot. I'm going to say it's a lot. It sounds like a lot. It's an amount that will kill you. And I'm sure that Anders knows that it will kill him. And that's why he buys it. He goes to a bar where there's other friends and he meets up with that girl again from the other party. He goes to a rave. Once again, he's with that girl. They kind of make out a little bit. He leaves that rave with her and two other friends. And there's this really sort of poignant scene where they leave and the two of them are on a bicycle together. And she's steering it. She's at the front of it. And then he's at the back sort of with his arms around her her waist or whatever and it's a really famous image from the film and it's on the posters for the most part and he rests his head on her back or against her back and he looks like he feels some kind of peace in that moment and so they go to these different places him and those friends and they end up at this pool this swimming pool at dawn right when it turns august 31st these are the final hours of his life That's what hit me with watching it the second time. I was like, we're watching the final days, the final 48 hours of a person's life aren't we? These are his last moments. These are the last things that he sees and experiences before his life ends. And there's something very haunting about that. And often Anders has this look in his eyes, like he is seeing everything for the last time. You can see it in his face. This is a film, as I said, about someone going toward death, hurtling toward death. So they're at the swimming pool and the three, the three people he's with take off their clothes. They're like in their underwear and stuff like that. The girl that he's with is topless and they jump into the pool and she kind of sits on the edge of it and she looks back at him a few times and Anders is just sitting there watching them and this scene was really powerful to me it's one of the most powerful scenes in the film I think and I got the sense that as he's sitting there watching and at times there's like tears in his eyes a little bit or there's this wistfulness about the look on his face I just get the sense that he's always on the outside always on the outside watching others. He's never fully connected to anything or anyone. He's really drifting alone 
through the world. No connections, no attachments, or he tries not to develop them. It's a lonely way to live, I think. And I do wonder if he can feel anything at all at times. He's just sitting there watching, watching them get in the pool and he has these tears in his eyes. You know, he's already bought the gram of heroin. He must know that he's seeing them for the last time. He knows what he's going to do. He's been thinking about it for a very long time. And he looks at the sunrise and that's his last sunrise. And to me, this scene feels very crucial because to me, it's a moment when Anders could choose life. He could stay with them. He could jump in the pool. He could live. He could open himself to love with this girl. It all beckons to him in this scene. The water, a beautiful girl, the sun rising. Life is just calling to him. That's why the film is not just about death and suicide and addiction. To me, it's there's an abundance of life in the film. It's almost like the film is reminding us of all the things that are worth living for that Anders can't see. We are also seeing all this stuff with him. We're seeing the same things he's seeing. We're seeing life. And it's almost like the, the film... That's what it is. It's like an abundance of life. And it's right there in front of Anders. It's right there for the taking. And it could be his. And he could um, he could go toward that. He could go toward that swimming pool. And actually, now that I think about it, the film begins with a lake or a river that's very dark. It's almost like this. It's almost black. It's a very dark, murky river that he walks into with that rock and then he resurfaces. He rises up out of it. And it's interesting that that water also bookends the film in a way that we start with this dark lake, this dark water, and then we have the pool that's like turquoise and bright and beautiful. That's water as life. Like at the beginning of the film, water represents death, possibly. This darkness that he descends and um, submerges himself in. The pool at the end is bright and blue and beautiful. And that is like water as a source of life. You know, he could jump into that pool and keep living and he could jump back into life he could start over and he says to Thomas earlier I can't start over I can't you know you don't understand you know I've messed things up so bad I think he feels like he's broken beyond repair that everything is broken beyond repair that nothing can be made better nothing can be made whole but that water represents life whereas the water at the beginning of the film that river represents death I think and he could jump in he could jump jump back into life. That water almost reminds me of David Hockney. I don't know if some of you have seen David Hockney's paintings of swimming pools. They're so beautiful, like crystal, you know, blue crystal waters. That's what that swimming pool is. All of, all of life is calling to him. Remember the scene where he has the butterfly on his arm? That's why I say this film, it's like if you described it to someone, they would think, oh, that's depressing. This guy kills himself at the end. But actually, it's a film about life. It's a film about living. It's a film about beauty. You know, there are trees and butterflies and walks through the city and people talking about things that they want and love and people going to parties and um, riding on bicycles and jumping in pools naked. And there's community and love and there's beauty throughout this film. There's all this life that's right in front of him and he won't take it. He won't do it. All of it's calling to him, Becky 
beckoning to him, but he walks away. He walks to his death. He's made that choice. And he goes to the home that his parents are selling, probably the home he grew up in, his childhood home. He plays piano for a little bit. He goes into a room. He puts a belt around his arm and he shoots up the heroin. And he lays back almost in this very peaceful way. And he's breathing a little bit and he's gone. The way his body fell back, it kind of reminded me of this painting by David called The Death of Marat. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's a very famous painting, but something about it reminded me of that painting. The way his body falls back, that's what he chooses. I was also having a conversation with, with my friend, the same one where we talked about love, and we were talking about like suicide and how when people do that, there's a lot of judgment that people who commit suicide are seen as weak or they're seen as bad people or something like that. And I I don't subscribe to that view. I don't subscribe to that kind of narrative or that kind of judgment of people who kill themselves. I think there are people in this world who are hurting so much. I came across a song recently. I got really into Neutral Milk Hotel recently. I listened to In in the Airplane Over the Sea, or In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, and I got obsessed with it. (laughs) I had it on repeat for like a week. I got obsessed with that album. And they have another album And there's this song on it called Three Peaches. And it is one of the most haunting, sorrowful songs I've ever come across. Like, I still feel affected by it. And it was written um, about a woman who did a suicide attempt, but she survived. And the song is about, the song says, like, uh, you know, this the person in the song is glad that she is alive, is glad that she didn't kill herself. She didn't succeed at killing herself. There's these amazing lyrics. And so uh, he sings, there is no dream, so wake up. And if the holidays don't hollow out your eyes, then press yourself against whatever you find to be beautiful and trembling with life, because I'm so happy you didn't die. It's about being happy that you didn't lose somebody who committed suicide. Well, 10 years after that song was written, it was written in the 1990s. About 10 years after the song was written, the woman that it was written about did kill herself. She did go through with the suicide and she didn't live. She didn't make it, but she had also lived a very painful life. She had been through a lot in her life. That was the choice that she made. I think when we talk about suicide, it's complicated and it's hard and it's painful. It's particularly painful for friends and family and people who are left behind. I know that. But there are people who come into this world and go through unimaginable pain and suffering. They don't know how to escape it or how to get away from it. I myself have been through tremendous pain. The death of my father was absolutely devastating. And I have thought about suicide, particularly in the years, the months and the years after my father's death. I had some very powerful thoughts of suicide. I talk a little bit about this on my episode about the Krzysztof Kieślowski film, Three Colors Blue, because there's a scene in that where the main character puts a bunch of pills in her mouth and almost kills herself. And I talked about how one day I had this bottle of like Tylenol and like I poured out a lot of the pills into my hand and I was alone. My mom wasn't there and you know it was after my father had died and I 
wanted to take these pills and I didn't want to live anymore. And I have had suicidal thoughts throughout my life. If something were to happen to my mother, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know if I could live without her. I feel like it would probably kill me in some way or I would kill myself. I don't know. I'm being honest about it. I'm saying there are people who live with tremendous pain and suffering. They don't know how to cope with it. Suicide is not a weakness. It doesn't mean that you failed or something. It means that you are hurting. It means that you're struggling human being in this fucked up world that can be really painful. I didn't do it because I had my mom. This goes back to what I asked, you know, why do some people go toward death? Why do some people go toward life? I don't know the answer. I think it's a bit of a mystery. I had my mom to think about. I had other things, I guess, to live for, you know, and I went toward life and I didn't do that. I didn't make that choice, but Anders makes that choice. And the film is about him making that choice. And it is about death. It is a film about death. You know, it confronts it head on and it confronts suicide head on. I think we need to have compassion for people who do that or attempt that. Those are people in terrible, terrible pain. They're not weak. They're not less than. They're hurting. So that's what Anders chooses to do. And I thought it was very interesting after he basically dies or he is in the process of dying. The camera leaves the house. It goes back to all the places where Anders once was. This technique was also used in a film by Richard Linklater in Before Sunrise, which I've also seen. I watched the Before trilogy last year in 2020 and I really liked it. I would like to do an episode about it one day. And he does the same thing at the end of that film after the two people who have met and they part. The camera goes back to all the different places that they had been together. And that film was made in the 90s. So the the camera um, goes to the empty pool. It goes to the bench. It shows the bench where Thomas and Anders had sat. It shows the dark Dark Lake, where he f- tried to kill himself at the beginning of the film. And we also see the scenes of the city, the scenes of Oslo. The world goes on without Anders. And it's a reminder that the world goes on without all of us. I guess in the grand scheme of things, none of us are needed. None of us are necessary. None of us are essential. And yet we are. Like, yes, our lives in the grand scheme of things do not mean a lot. (laughs) They don't mean a lot next to like the cosmos and millions of years. But we're here now and we're alive now together. And that does matter. That's why I think connection matters. Whatever form that it might take, I do believe that connection matters. You know, yeah, I sit here and I talk about films and some of you listen to it. That's a connection. That's something. And I hope that my voice reaches some of you out there. Some of you who may be struggling with anxiety. You may be struggling with depression. You may be struggling with pain in your life. I hope it's not all pain. I hope you have some joy. I hope you have some beauty. I hope you find it because I'm looking for it too. You know, I do try to focus on beauty as much as I can. I focus on those songs and those poems and those books and films and all kinds of stuff that does make my life very rich and does make my life meaningful. And the wonderful people that I've met and some of them that I've met through this podcast, I am very grateful for the stuff that I have. And I try to remember that. And I think maybe with Anders, he couldn't see it or he couldn't remember it. So I do try to look at some of the positives. I try to find the beauty and it's not always easy, right? Like I think a lot about Mary Oliver. The thing about Mary Oliver is that 
her poems are really beautiful and they're about nature and all kinds of stuff like that, right? She wrote a lot about nature, about trees and flowers and bears and all kinds of stuff. And I think a lot of people read her poetry and think, oh, she must have never really been through anything. She just writes about, you know, nature and beautiful stuff. And it's actually the opposite. Mary Oliver had a very tumultuous home life when she was a child, I think. An abusive, I think she grew up in an abusive family. She went through some dark stuff and a lot of pain. It's not easy to find the beauty. I think it's actually easier sometimes to be cynical and to be jaded and to just look at how everything is dark and terrible and horrible. I get in that place too. I get in that place a lot where I can't see the beauty and the good. But sometimes the people who have been through some of the worst things, who have been through trauma, who have been through a lot of pain and loss and grief, sometimes what makes them focus on the beauty and what allows them to see it is because they've been through so much darkness and pain. And that is precisely why they choose to look at the beauty, to see the light, to focus on life, is because they know what it's like to not have those things. They know what it's like to be in the pain, in the darkness, in the black void. And I do often feel this conflict, you know, between the dark and the light within me, you know, and I try to go toward the light. I try to focus on the light more. I'm trying. That to me is what this film is about. I mean, so much of the film is about the light. It's about life. It's about friends and experiences and being alive and seeing other people's lives, being part of the world. You know, the way he walks around the city, the conversations he has, the conversations he overhears, you know, being on the back of the bicycle with his head against that girl's back, the butterfly on his arm. I thought it was interesting. The position of that butterfly is like on his inner forearm where he like would shoot up heroin and it might be the place where he shoots up when he commits suicide right we don't fully know why Anders makes the decision to kill himself reminds me a little bit of Taste of Cherry by Abbas Kurastami. that's about a man going around in a town in Iran looking for somebody who will bury his body once he commits suicide we don't know why this man wants to kill himself in Taste of Cherry it's a big mystery we don't know that wound we don't know what that thing is in him and it's kind of similar with Anders we don't exactly know why but we know that that's what he chooses to do the world goes on without him but there are people in that world that are going to be heartbroken by his death and by his absence and he did matter to people and that is the only meaning that I can really find in life is to matter to people and to connect to people and to try to love and be loved and to appreciate art. Those are those are my meaning. <laughs> art, love, and connection. That's what I focus on because I've known the darkness. I still know the darkness. I will always know the darkness, but I hold on to life. I hold on to life. And Anders did not do that. He made a different choice. He went in a different direction. The beauty of the film is that it balances that dark subject matter. It balances life and death. It's about both hope and hopelessness. It's about the struggle to connect, to see ourselves as enough, to forgive ourselves for what we cannot be and what we did not do. All the regrets that can overwhelm us. Because that's what I see in Anders. I see somebody overwhelmed by shame, self-hatred, and regrets. And he feels like he's so deep in the grave 
and in the hole that he can never get out of it. And he's let people down and he's hurt people. And I think he's also ashamed of that. But the film is about um, the dark and the light. And it, I think it balances it very well. The thing about this film is it, that ending is very devastating. It's also, it's, it's a very powerful ending. But I didn't necessarily feel sad. I mean, I did feel sad. I did feel a sadness. But I wouldn't say that the film depressed me or anything like that. I think for some people this would be a heavy film. For me, it was not a heavy film. I think because I saw myself in Anders. There was something cathartic and comforting about the film in that way of seeing a character that I related to. I related to his shame, his self-hatred, his regrets, his loneliness, his alienation, his depression, all of it you know, the void, all of it. There's that feeling of being understood or seeing some of my own feelings and struggles in the film. And there are films that make us feel seen. There are films that make us feel understood. And it's rare for me to feel that. I don't often feel that when I watch a film just because I have very, you know, specific experiences. But I felt that with this one for sure. I think in the end, Anders can't forgive himself. He can't see his own worth. He can't connect or feel. He can't see a future for himself because he's made so many mistakes. And so I relate to that feeling. You know, I relate to feeling so many regrets about choices that I've made and often feeling like I can't live with those regrets. You know, I feel this terrible pain sometimes that I can't go back and I can't change decisions that I made. I can't do it all over again. I can only go forward and try to do better but I can't pretend like what came before didn't affect me, that those mistakes and choices haven't damaged me. You know, my loneliness and my isolation has dam- have damaged me a lot, to be honest with you. Something else I wanted to say about Anders is that, and about this film, is that I think it's a powerful film about not living up to our own idealized version of ourselves. I think your 30s are a time when you're coming to terms with the idea that maybe you're not going to be everything that you dreamed of. When when you were a teenager or even in your early 20s and how do you make peace with that can you what if you can't you know I'm in my early 30s as I said and so these are some of my own preoccupations of like oh I'm not gonna be the person that I dreamed about I'm not gonna have all the stuff that I dreamed about when I was younger and there's something painful about that I, I think it's I think it's important that Anders is in his early 30s in the film he's like 34 because that is a time when I think you start to feel some of that when you're starting to grapple with, I'm not going to be the person that I thought I was going to be. Things are not going to work out the way that I thought that they were going to work out. And he can't deal with that. He can't deal with the way things are now in his life. I think the film also captures very well this feeling of being like lost and adrift. And I remember I had a teacher um, in high school. And this was after my father died. And she, she knew that my father had died. She was an English teacher. And this was probably, this was my senior year of high school. And one day she said something to me like, I don't want to see you drift. She said that to me. I think she could tell that I was lost. I think she could tell that I was going to drift, that I was already adrift. And I do feel like that's what I've been doing so much of my life. And I think Anders is drifting too. He's like literally drifting and meandering when he's walking around Oslo as well. So that drifting is almost made physical through his perambulations, to use a fancy word, through Oslo. But he's drifting and he's lost. 
I think he's a profoundly lost character and he doesn't know where he fits in because also it's hard for him to go back to his friends because they've seen him at his worst. They've seen him at his lowest. It's almost like he feels ashamed when he sees them because when they look at him, they don't see him. They see the addict. They see the damage he's done. They see someone who's messed up, who's made a lot of mistakes. So he really can't start new. He'll always be defined by the mistakes that he made and the way that he hurt people. You know, it can be really hard to look at people in the eye that you hurt and to face them. And I think he feels like he doesn't really belong with his friends. He doesn't really belong with his family. He doesn't really belong with his friends because of the past. I think the past weighs on him. Even though he's trying to get clean and do better, all of it still weighs on him. That he's hurt people, that he's let people down, that he's let himself down. But when they look at him, do they see him? Or do they remember all the bad stuff that he did? And can he ever make amends? Can he ever remedy it? Can he ever make up for it? I don't know if he can. And so I don't think he feels fully at ease or at home like he belongs, even with his friends. So there's definitely a sense of him being lost and out of place. Those are my thoughts. I hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.